This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. I actually think that North Koreans see this as an opportunity. I think they see, because Trump is so unique and different, if there's ever going to be a deal made, that it could be potentially done with President Trump. They also believe that it could possibly last, because they don't believe there's another administration Who's that's going to follow. Tough, exactly. If you had a few minutes with President Trump, what would you tell him? Please listen to your advisors. I'm just afraid President Trump will try to go into this meeting with Kim Jong-un and try to wing it. Sumi Terry is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington, D.C. She is one of our country's leading experts on North Korea. During her career, Sue served as a senior analyst on Korean issues at the CIA, the director for Korea and Japan at the National Security Council, the Deputy National Intelligence Officer for East Asia at the National Intelligence Council, a National Intelligence Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, and as a Senior Research Scholar at Columbia University's East Asian Institute. I had the opportunity to sit down with Sue this week and talk about North Korea and its leader, Kim Jong-un. We'll be right back with our conversation after this message from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Podcast presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure to critical mission systems, Raytheon crosses networks, markets, and continents, defending every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. Sue, it is great to have you on the podcast, and it's terrific to see you again. Thank you so much for having me on. Nice to see you. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about your background and how you got from where you started to to where you are today. So you were born in Seoul, and you grew up in Hawaii. First question is, what got you interested in studying North Korea? Where does that interest come from? Where does that passion come from? Well, I was born in South Korea, and I was always interested in politics. So I majored in political science and East Asian studies in college. 
And then I continued on with international relations at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And initially, I was very interested in China because we thought, you know, China is the future. Yeah. It kind of is, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> it's true. But thankfully, my dissertation advisors said, Sue, there are so many people who are focusing on China. You're Korean-American. You speak the language fluently. You understand the culture. There's just so much there. And Korea is a growing field, not only because of North Korea, but South Korea is important too. And if there's ever unification, what does that look like? So they really you know, said, why don't you consider going into Korean studies rather than just trying to do what everybody's doing uh, if you're an East Asian specialist and focus on China. So that was really an excellent advice. So I did my doctoral dissertation on modern Korean history, focusing on South Korea, of course, because it was hard to get to do primary research doing North Korea. But doing that, I, I got interested in modern Korean history and politics, and that, of course, includes North Korea. And your part of your family came from North Korea, correct? Yes, And so that's part of it, too. Uh, My paternal side of the family came from North Korea, and they were in South Korea before the Korean War broke out, and then they never made it back. Thankfully, they had their immediate family with them, but they never got to see their parents again or their siblings ever again. My grandparents didn't. And because my father died when I was very young, I was in part raised by both sets of grandparents. So I still remember growing up under my paternal grandparents who spoke with very thick North Korean accent, who just dreamt about and told me stories about North Korea and food from Pyongyang and Pyongyang Naengmyeon and and so on. So there was that always sort of, you know, I I think that just was part of me growing up. So how did you go from your studies on Korea to working at the CIA? Well, initially, I thought I'll just get my PhD and get into academia. But CIA actually came to recruit at the Fletcher School. And I thought, you know, was CIA, you know, I, I was, I don't know much about it. I just thought it was just kind of, I kind of bought the Hollywood version that CIA must know everything. So it was really curiosity uh, that led me to, and, you know, I wanted to serve. I wanted to serve, but I thought, well, what does CIA know? They must know something. And why don't I just try it at least for a few years? And that got me interested. And then I accepted the position. So we've had on Intelligence Matters, Sue, we've had a lot of CIA operations officers I actually think you're the first former analyst that we've had on. Can you just talk a little bit about what it's like to be an analyst at CIA? Well, I still think it's one of the greatest jobs I ever had. I still remember when I first wrote my president's daily brief, PDB, which is obviously the flag product, the most important product in analyst rights. And it was only about a year into the job. And I got feedback. For instance, the president said this, the vice president said this, the national security advisor had a follow-up question, and they just floored me. I said, I wrote something, and these people, including the president of the United States, read it, and they're actually giving me a feedback? I just spent years writing a PhD dissertation, and maybe four people read it. Uh, Three dissertation advisors and my significant other, who I forced to read uh, my dissertation. So I thought... Wow, this is something significant. This is this is real. This this has an impact. What I'm writing and saying is getting delivered to the president. And then, of course, I got used to it. But as an analyst, this is what you do: you research, you write, you analyze, and you speak truth to power. Right? You give your best analysis to the policymakers who makes decisions. How do you, as an analyst, make sure that because everybody has a view, right, of what the policy should be? It's, it's hard not to, right, that you have an understanding of this issue and you think you know what the United States should do. How do you make sure that that 
doesn't influence your analysis? Well, I think you continually have to check yourself, but it's because you know you're not supposed to politicize intelligence, that you're not giving a policy recommendation, I guess you just need to have that discipline to say you're analyzing the situation as you see it truthfully. But then there is a so what component, right? You sort of say significance of what you're analyzing, and you sort of leave it there because as an analyst, you're not supposed to give policy recommendations. Now, I found that other foreign intelligence agencies, often they do. They just give recommendation, but then I think what happens is it's impossible to not politicize when you know what your leaders and your boss wants. I think that's a problem. So I don't know how you do it. It's just that it's constantly in your mind to avoid it because it's not what you do. This is not part of your job description. And those foreign intelligence agencies who push policy, it really raises questions then about the objectivity of their analysis even if it is objective, it certainly raises questions about it. Right. And particularly when their analysis have changed with a different administration, and you know you've been dealing with this, how can it just change overnight? So then you get to question their analysis fairly or unfairly. And so I think that's the risk uh, when you are giving policy recommendation as an analyst, um, that people can question whether it's truly objective analysis or you're giving that recommendation because that's what those people want to hear. So let's talk about North Korea. And I want to let our listeners know that we're taping this a week before it will be released. So it's possible that when our listeners listen to this, the summit will be on. It's possible it will be off. And it's possible that it will still be iffy, right? So just important for people to know that. Can you tell us, Sue, about Kim Jong-un? Who is he? What is he like? What makes him tick? To the extent that we actually know, right? Right. So I think for the last seven years, you know, before the whole or the few months of summit and diplomacy, it was just hard to really figure him out because we didn't have a lot to go by. We had some anecdotal information from the former sushi chef, Kenji Fujimoto. We, you know, Dennis Rodman was the only man who actually met with Kim Jong-un, so we didn't have a lot of debriefings by people who actually met Kim Jong-un. So all we were able to do is just watch what he's been doing. And, of course, we know that he is ruthless, and there's no question about that. Just the way in which he executed his uncle, a very public execution. I think that was, that was still a shock for Korea watchers, even though we're used to purges. We're used to watching North Koreans just kind of get into accidents. So just the way in which that was conducted. And, of, of course, Kim Jong-nam, his half-brother, who he also assassinated uh, on the order of Kim Jong-un. So we know he's a ruthless guy. But I was also struck by watching him over the years uh, that he physically looks like Kim Il-sung, his father. His behavior is also kind of like his grandfather, rather than his father, I mean, because Kim Jong-il, his father, was very introverted. He was not a people person. And Kim Jong-un clearly is more of a people person. He's out and about doing his inspections and guidance tours. He's holding babies. He's, you know, hugging folks, young and old. He's, you know, laughing. He's jovial. So he's more friendly. He's more people-oriented. He also seems to be a, you know, young leader, so which means he wants to be a modern leader of a modern nation, you know, because he, he's been doing all these things that sort of modern trappings of what he thinks is a modern country, right? He built an amusement park. Dolphinarium, a ski resort, horseback riding club, and pizza parlors, and the ladies who are wearing uh, sexier clothes, and Disney characters and dancing on the stage. So it's just kind of this combination of 
more of a larger kind of larger than life kind of personality, but also very ruthless. And so we're still trying to figure him out. But I also hear that he can be bold, that he, he's more risk tolerant, which means he can take more risks. So we'll see what actually happens on this summit if it takes place between President Trump and Kim, if he can indeed make such bold decision like giving up nuclear weapons program. How do you think he thinks about the United States? What do you think his mindset is with regard to the United States, number one? And then how do you think he thinks about President Trump, number two? I think he has a mixed feeling of the United States. Obviously, any North Korean growing up in North Korea, U.S. is your number one enemy, hostile threat. So there is that threatening component to it. Uh, I think it's impossible for a North Korean in, in a leader too, just not see the United States as a threat. But he's also somebody who embraced Dennis Rodman, who is now talking about burgers. And he did grow up in, in the West. He was a huge NBA basketball fanatic. So there's also envy to certain level of recognize that U.S. popular culture or at least the elements that he likes about it while also being feeling threatened by it. It's almost like many countries in the world where there's a, a love of American culture, right, and, right. and a dislike of right. American policy. Right, exactly. And to answer your second question about what he may think of President Trump, I actually think that North Koreans see this as an opportunity, that even though President Trump is surrounded by certain hawks like Ambassador John Bolton, whom North Koreans do not like because of what they think is a very hardline policy, I think they see because Trump is so unique and different that if there is ever going to be a deal made, that it could be potentially done with President Trump. And actually, North Koreans, I had a 1.5 track meeting with North Koreans, and I've been told that they actually think that if a deal can be made, with this administration, they also believe that it could possibly last because they don't believe there's another administration Who's that's going to follow. Tough, exactly, right? yeah. uh, that's going to be you know saying, "Oh, that was not tough enough." So, strangely or ironically, they see it as an opportunity. We'll be right back after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. In the next-gen controls of tomorrow's UAVs. In the high-tech guidance systems of tomorrow's weapons. In the supercomputers mounting tomorrow's cyber defense. Raytheon is there. Driving innovation that helps the U.S. Army protect people, information, and infrastructure. Together, we're making the world a safer place. So, Sue, one of the things that I felt was my responsibility when I was the head of analysis at CIA and then when I was deputy director was to make sure that we as an agency were answering the key questions that the president needed answers to. And if I were in my old job, there are three questions I would have. So let me throw those three questions at you. And it's almost like we were back in my old office and you were sitting there and I was throwing questions at you, right? The first is, is Kim Jong-un at this moment in time, do you believe, willing to negotiate away his nuclear weapons and his long-range missiles? How do you think about that? It's sort of the key question, Right. right? Right. I think he's willing to sit down and negotiate. Will he, at this moment, thinking in his head that he's going to absolutely give up completely irreversibly his nuclear weapons program? I don't think so. 
Now, it doesn't mean that he won't ever, because I think there's still an opportunity to try to shape one's thinking. But at this moment, what he wants is just a negotiation, to be A, to be able to sit down with Trump. And if he gets nothing out of that, well, he does get something out of that, just that alone. I think North Korea is way better off right now than where they were just and why is that? Why is that? Well, because because of all the diplomacy and symmetry, and we have normalized him. He he now looks like a normal person, a normal leader of a normal country, and the political will. Because he had these meetings with Xi Jinping twice and met with Moon uh, Jae-in, South Korean president, uh, multiple times, and now has opened the door with China and South Korea. The political will to continue on with maximum pressure to truly implement sanctions is already weakened. And the political will to sort of get back to this kind of talk about military strike, that's almost impossible, particularly if North Korea does not get back to provocation and do more missile and nuclear tests, which I don't believe it will, because North Korea is pretty smart. So if they just stop the testing, how do we return to talking about preventive strike when North Korea is not doing any more testing? So they're already much better off. And when they've demonstrated a willingness to talk. Exactly. So they look reasonable. Now they have to sort of put a wedge between, could also put a further wedge between Seoul and Washington, has now gotten somewhere with Xi Jinping when they have not met at all until just recently. Uh, These last two meetings were the first two meetings that Xi Jinping ever had with Kim Jong-un. So I think North Korea is much better off already. So you meet with Trump, it doesn't really work out. For North Korea, I don't think it's a big deal. So what he's ultimately willing to do with regard to his strategic weapons depends to some extent on whether he's... He's where he is because he feels desperate because of the sanctions and the economic situation in the North or whether he feels confident because of what he's been able to demonstrate with those strategic weapons. How do you think I, about that? I, I really think it's it's not one, but I do think if I have to say which one is a greater reason that Kim Jong-un is now coming back to talks, I think he's, it's because he feels confident that he has... 90, 95 percent completed his program, even though they say they've completely like, perfected their nuclear arsenal. It's because they haven't. They have a couple more technical hurdles to cross. But still, I think Kim Jong-un feels confident enough that this is the right time to negotiate, to sit down with President Trump because they have maximum leverage, because they have made such advancement in their nuclear and missile program. Now, as a side benefit, if you can get sanctions relief and so on, that's good. Uh, sanctions have been working. They were just beginning to bite. But I think we need to do more. A longer period of time was required for North Korea to truly feel it. So they might have seen sanctions coming and what's coming down the road. They've also been could have been affected by all this talk of military strike. But I really also think it's because Kim Jong-un feels that he has got to a certain level with his nuclear program, that he can sit down with President Trump from position of strength, if not strength, at least equal. So the second question is, if he is willing to negotiate them away, what would we have to give in order for him to get there? I think for North Korea to even contemplate, we need to give, as North Korea always said, security guarantee. And that's not just a statement. We already gave them a security guarantee during the six-party talks process, saying we're never going to attack you with conventional or nuclear weapons. But that was not good enough. So I really think what they mean by that is a peace treaty, which will eventually undermine rationale for our troop presence, our U.S. troop presence in South Korea. and Undermine it politically in politically, the United States. Yes, in the United States and South Korea. And too. South Korea. Because South Korea, is, you know, there's already a mixed feeling about our presence 
in South Korea. So eventually, this peace treaty will undermine rationale for, for our troop presence in South Korea and the extended nuclear umbrella that we have, United States have, over South Korea and Japan. So I think they mean all of that. I think that's what's going to make Kim Jong-un feel like they can make certain progress on the nuclear front in terms of denuclearization. It's not just economic. So I know we focus a lot on economic helping them economically. And President Trump keeps saying, you know, North Korea, you'll be very rich and you'll be very, very happy. But I really think it's more than that. It's, it's, it's really about our U.S. alliance relationship with South Korea, our troop presence in South Korea, and all of that. So those would be, right, a peace treaty would be a tangible thing. Normalization of relations would be a tangible thing. The political pressure in South Korea and possibly the United States to remove the troops would be a longer-term thing that he, Kim, doesn't control, right? He might enjoy watching it happen, and, and it will take some time. But are there other things that he would ask for initially? Would he ask for an end to military exercises? Would he ask for an end to U.S. strategic bomber flights, you know, yeah. near the peninsula? Would there other be other yeah. things he would actually ask for? I think those things you just mentioned— he will definitely ask for. And I think he will also ask for, you know, I think because China, I don't know exactly what happened with Kim Jong-un's second meeting with Xi Jinping, but I have also a feeling that maybe China's ask too, that Xi Jinping might have told Kim Jong-un, I have no evidence of this, but when they had their conversations, like, don't forget about the troops and strategic bombers and all that, because China also cares about that. And of course, China wants to make sure that its interests is protected. So I think those are the things that they could ask for. It's really freeze for freeze in a way, but that's, I think that will definitely come up. Third question, if he does negotiate them away, even a process, right, what's the likelihood that he will cheat, do you think? Because he has a history of that, right? His father had a history of that, signing an agreement and then cheating on the side. Is that something we need to worry about? I think we have to assume that that's going to be part of it. I think we don't know exactly because Kim Jong-un is different from, could be different from his father. We have no, we can't say with 100% certainty that he's going to cheat, but we have to assume based on North Korea's history and just its own strategic interest that they will keep elements of nuclear program or find a way to cheat. But if we can still start this process of negotiation and if you're okay with managing the North Korean crisis rather than having this expectation we have to completely solve it, then is 60% good enough, is 70% good enough solution? That's a policymaker's you know, question that, and then that they need to answer. Okay, a handful of other key questions, and maybe we'll try to do these in rapid fire. With regard to this process, with regard to U.S.-North Korean relations, Sue, what do you think each of the following countries wants? So we'll start with South Korea. South Korea was very spooked by this military strike talk, preventive strike talk that came out of Washington. So I think they are okay as long as that's out of the picture. And of course, if they can get to a better place in U.S.-North Korea having a diplomatic relations, I think this current government would absolutely welcome that. But their number one priority is to avoid conflict on the Korean Peninsula. Japan. I think Prime Minister Abe is very concerned that President Trump is going to make a deal on the intercontinental ballistic missile that leaves short-range and medium-range missiles still there. Uh, and of course, Japan is still under that threat. Um, and Japan wants the abduction issue, which they care about very much, to be raised uh, if there is a summit. I think those two are the two issues that Japan cares about. They have been more hardline on North Korea in general. 
and then China. I think China is kind of, you know, a complicated situation. Like China wants U.S. and North Korea to get to a better place because China doesn't want a military conflict on the Korean Peninsula either. And it would be good if there's an agreement that leads to troop reduction in South Korea. Then China's number one interest is to make sure that it has influence over North and South Korea. So I think they just want to make sure that that's protected. They don't want North Korea to go overboard and get too close to the United States because that doesn't quite work for China either. In the scenario you talked about earlier where there's a peace treaty, where there might be normalization of relations and this pressure gets created in South Korea about do we really need these troops, that's certainly in China's long-term interest as well. Yes, absolutely. I think China would welcome that if there is actually true, because U.S. troops, more than annoying North Korea, I think really annoys China, U.S. troop presence in South Korea. And then the other player here, because they are a Security Council member and they matter in that regard, and they were part of the six-party talks, Russia. How do you think they think about this? I think Russia thinks similarly as China in the sense that, you know, if there is no true presence in South Korea, they will also welcome that. Russia always just wanted to be a sort of a player and not be left out. Russia could always play a spoiler role, too, so we need to watch out for Russia. But no matter what Russia tries to do in terms of influencing North Korea, it's still China that is a paramount in terms of being, having, having any leverage over North Korea just because 90% of North Korea's trade with, is with China, not Russia. Russia always wants to play a role, but how significant, I, it's, it's unclear. So, Sue, one, one more question. You wrote a lot of PDBs when you were at CIA. In fact, you set some sort of record, I remember. And you were also a member of the National Security Council staff for both President Bush and for President Obama. You spent a lot of time telling presidents how to think about issues. If you had a few minutes with President Trump and he asked you for your advice, what would you tell him? I would say, please listen to your advisors. I do think that he actually has great advisors. I think Pompeo is a very smart person. I Secretary Pompeo, Mattis, and even Borton, even though I don't agree with Borton's views, is very hardline on North Korea, but he's been following North Korea for many years. I'm just afraid that President Trump will try to go into this meeting with Kim Jong-un and try to wing it. North Korea has been studying the United States and just solely focused on the United States for decades. This is not something that we can wing. So please listen to your advisors. What's the risk of winging it? Either we give away too much because we think, oh, that sounds great. You, you, you know, you want peace treaty? That sounds great in theory without really understanding what that actually means. So either you give away too much without getting anything really substantial in return or you wing it and it doesn't go well and you leave and now you left no other option for yourself except a risk of conflict, which is obviously if there's a conflict on the Korean Peninsula, it's, it'll be catastrophic. Which, which worries you more? At this moment, I'm worried that he's going to give up too much. Sue, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. That was Sue Me Terry. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for more Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.
Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.